In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we come to the end of this session of Deuteronomy, we ask your blessing that you continue to help us to understand the purpose, the reason it was written in the first place. So it is so different from the other four books of the Pentateuch, and yet there is a great deal of similarity as well. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. So as we come to the end of our session here, uh, it's always bittersweet, so to speak. I'm looking for some time off, uh, but I know I'm going to miss all of you. And uh, I hope that I'll see you from time to time and see you in church, as they say. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about the ending uh, of the book, which actually is the last two of the four speeches that were written by the Deuteronomist in the voice of Moses. And it's important that we remember how and why this book was written because it applies to us today just as much as it did almost 3,000 years ago. Uh, I think our society is no different today than it was then. And if you recall from reading the books of Kings, first and second books of Kings, how each succeeding king seemed to outdo the other on how profane he could uh, actually live and lead his people. And they enjoyed it because they were uh, intermingling with the neighbors around them and they were picking up uh, a lot of the bad, <clears throat> bad habits of those same neighbors. And unfortunately, it really got out of hand. So the whole idea of the book of Deuteronomy is for a small group that realized how they were drifting away as a society. And when I say they, I'm talking about the northern kingdom of Israel in the 9th and 8th uh, centuries BC. Now, when we talk about 9th and 8th centuries BC, this is six or 700 years after Moses. So obviously Moses did not write this book, as many people believe, nor did he write any of the other four books of the Pentateuch. Uh, they didn't come until much later, but that's another story. Uh, the whole idea here is that these people were drifting away from the teachings of, of God through Moses and the teachings that Moses added on. Uh, and we have to understand what this was all about. First of all, I want to go back to um, the objective of the book. But there's more to that than meets the eye. The objective of the book was to be faithful or return the people to being faithful 
to the teachings of Moses and uh, the laws of God given through Moses. But why? Why is it so important? You have to remember that God had a plan, a plan to bring salvation to all mankind. And that plan started way back with Abraham. And it was a plan to develop a nation that was developed uh, for the purpose of God speaking through them, this nation, to the other nations. And so, over a period of time, the Jewish people, or the Israelites, as they were earlier called, remember the word Jew is not in the Old Testament at all, uh, they were called Israelites for a long period of time, more or less after Jacob, the grandson of Moses, and his twelve sons, became the spokespeople and the, the beginning of the twelve tribes and the beginning of, of the nation. Up till that time, from the time of Moses till the time of Jacob, it was pretty much Abraham uh, and his son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob that was a family. And out of that family, over a period of years, particularly when they were in uh, Egypt for nearly 400 years, that family grew into a nation. And that was part of God's plan. He had a covenant, beginning with Abraham, and then renewed with Isaac and Jacob, and then down through the ages, that he would take care of them, that is the Jewish people or the Israelites, as long as they were faithful to him. And it was a two-way thing. And he did take care of them in many, many ways. Particularly, and this is what uh, the book of Deuteronomy <coughs> in chapter 29 is trying to convey. It begins with the reminding of the people of what was going on and why this was all taking place. It says the major concern of this address, that is the third address, beginning with chapter 29, um, is Israel's immediate future. Because what was happening here is because of their... Uh, sinfulness and their disbelief and their ignoring God, uh, they were drifting away from the intended purpose uh, of being God's spokesperson. It says, <clears throat> Moses makes provisions for Joshua to assume the leadership of the tribes after his death. Equally important are the provisions made for storing the book of the law and its periodic reading. The law is to be the guide uh, in Israel's future existence in the land. Individual human leaders come and go, 
but the law endures as the most effective way of safeguarding Israel's commitment to the Lord. And that is really what uh, this book is all about, trying to get the people to remember the many times that God took care of them, and now it is their turn to return and get away from the loose forms of living that they were getting themselves into. And as I've said many times, we are doing the same thing today. Our electronic devices of all kinds have taken us uh, into a, a different direction and away from God. I've heard actual people say, well, I was so busy uh, watching television or I was so busy uh, doing this on the computer or I was so busy uh, teaching my kids how to do such and such uh, that I didn't have time to go to church. Well, you can see right from that uh, that people are losing track of what is truly important. Not that we should totally ignore all of the major conveniences that have been developed over the last several years, uh, but we have to put them in place. And God has always told us through Jesus Christ, his son, that he must be first in your life. And that still holds. It was the most important thing in the life of the Jewish people way back 3,000 years ago, and it is still the most important thing in life today, that God must be first in your life. And when he is first in your life, then all the other things will fall into their proper place. It doesn't mean that you have to ignore them or do without although sometimes I'd rather do without some of the stuff. Uh, my kids and grandkids keep saying, well, Grandpa, why don't you get a cell phone so that you can text back and forth? And I said, look, you want to talk to me? You pick up a landline and you call me and we'll talk. So uh, they think, oh, he's such an old funny duck. Well, that may be. But God is first in my life, and that's the way I like it. Okay. So, there are a number of other things. I'm not going to read all of this stuff today. I would rather give it to you in my uh, sort of off-hand or off-the-cuff way. Okay. Uh, you want to follow me, and we'll go along here, but uh, like I said, I'm not going to read it. Yeah. So for the next part of chapter um, 29 is really a call to fidelity. Remember, God is the creator of all mankind and all that is. And he has told us that the end of all mankind will be at, first of all, the end of our individual life. And then at some time in the, in the future, the end of all uh, life as we know it here. 
But, and there are only two choices. It's either God's way or eternal damnation. There is no choice other than that. There is no in-between. There is no, no anything else. It is either we choose God or we choose by default to go to hell. And that is not a very pleasant uh, idea. Okay. And yet people forget that or don't want to believe it. I heard a priest just the other day uh, say that, oh, you know, the Old Testament was all about uh, hell and damnation and punishment. But the New Testament is about God's love and God will take care of everything. No way. He is definitely incorrect in that. Now, I think that he really needs to kind of review what he's saying here because he's giving the impression that everybody goes to heaven. And that would be part of an injustice. Remember, we had a session here on justification and the whole idea of justice. Well, if everybody went to heaven, what purpose would there be in all of us trying to be good people? You know? So that is wrong. And it's frightening because people still look at it that way. Oh, God is so good, he would never send anybody to hell. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, let's give you a few examples. What about these shootings that are going on so randomly and so frequently lately? Can the perpetrator be taken into heaven like everybody else after he's shot up several people? No. No, there's got to be a right and a wrong. There's got to be punishment uh, as well as uh, a loving, a loving uh, privilege for those who have done good. Or, yes, Julie? That is true, yes. But so that if is. Somebody stopped someone and then really had remorse and really repented God before they died. All right, but take about, just take this last incident where uh, the young fellow uh, shot up several of his classmates and then shot himself. He didn't have any opportunity, he didn't have any desire. To repent. No, your your point your point is well taken. Yes, if there is true repentance, true repentance, and that's a big if. All right, that's a very big if. But let's not get into that kind of analysis here. The point is, for the most of the people that are perpetrating these kinds of crimes, uh, we can uh, readily believe that their end is eternal damnation, which does not uh, 
appeal to anyone, really. <clears throat> Israel's bound to the covenant. As I mentioned before, the covenant was made with Abraham. The covenant existed and consisted of God taking care of his people as long as they remain faithful to him and faithful to him because there was a purpose in developing this nation and they were to be the spokespeople to those around them but Judaism was also supposed to be and was the roots of Christianity Judaism in itself could not supply salvation to all mankind just by itself. It needed the life, death, and resurrection of Christ himself uh, as the epitome of that covenant. But we today are under a covenant as well. When the priest at Mass lifts up the host and the chalice, particularly the chalice, and offers the body and blood uh, of Christ to God the Father. He will say something along the lines of, this is the blood of the new and eternal covenant that we are all under in when we accept the commitments that we make at baptism. And if you're not familiar with that, I would suggest that you look into what is the purpose of baptism and what are the commitments that we make to God as part of the covenant. It's the same kind of fidelity that was asked of the Jewish people way back. The next section here is warning against idolatry. Well, idolatry, of course, is not only the ignoring of God, uh, but the indifference. Well, I don't care whether it's one way or the other. You know, whatever happens after death, I'm not going to be concerned with. Well, I beg to differ with you. You shouldn't be very much concerned. But idolatry is more than that. It is profaning the belief that there is a God or profaning the belief that God can ever forgive anybody uh, or so on in uh, the teachings of the church. So a warning against idolatry is a very important part of chapter 29 of this book. And then it goes into the punishment uh, for infidelity. It says, future generations, your own descendants, I'm reading the scripture part of this here, will rise up after you, as well as the foreigners who have come here from afar. When they see the calamities of this land and the ills which, which the Lord has smitten it, all its soil being nothing but sulfur and salt, a burnt-out waste, unknown and unfruitful, without a blade of grass, destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., uh, etc. Et Don't we have the same kind of things going on today? Yeah. 
And that's why I say <clears throat> that God is using these so-called natural disasters as a wake-up call because mankind is grossly ignoring the teachings of God and his church. But chapter 30 goes into mercy for the repentant. And that's Julius where we can take some comfort here. When all of these things which I have set before you, the blessings and the curses, are fulfilled in you, and from among whatever nations the Lord your God may have dispersed you, you ponder them in your heart, and, and then provided that you and your children return to the Lord your God and heed his voice with all your heart and all your soul. And this is what we call a true, sincere form of repentance. The Lord your God will change your life and take pity on you. He will again gather you from all the nations wherein you have been scattered. Uh, though you may have been driven to the furthest corners of the world, even from there will the Lord your God gather you. Even from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will then bring you into the land which your fathers once occupied, that you may <coughs> also occupy it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Very important. So, yes, there is always repentance. God does not want to put anybody into hell. But he leaves the door open. I have, you know, I don't, I don't have it here. I have a, something that I had my, granddaughter developed. She's a, quite an artist. She's a, quite an artist and developed a sketch here showing or a diagram or whatever her conception of evil trying to pull us back and the hand of God being reached out as the grace that is extended to all mankind. God does not want to punish anyone but because he is the God of perfect justice, there has to be another side to the coin. So and that is damnation. Yes? Now, do you think we're living in the latter days? Uh, that's a possibility. Uh, we have no way of knowing. Yeah. We have no way, no way of knowing. But I would not be concerned about the latter days. I'd be concerned with what's going on today. That's the only thing that we can uh, do anything about is our life today. Julie? I would like your definition in the next sentence. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. What is circumcision? Well, the whole idea of circumcision you are aware of what circumcision is about. But in the Jewish faith, the idea of circumcision was a, 
of bloodletting uh, as a true acknowledgement of a sacrifice and a commitment. All right. <clears throat> because it only pertained to the males. In Christianity, God changed that to baptism. So, circumcision was a commitment to God through Moses. Baptism is a commitment to God through Jesus Christ. All right? So if we, we can equate one with the other. Uh, everyone understand that? Yeah. The choice, again, as I've said before here, and of course in chapter 29, verse 15, the choice is you know, either it's God's way or the way to hell. In the end, there is no other choice. And so I don't think that most of us would care. But let me, let me read here what it says. The whole book of Deuteronomy has been leading up to this dramatic choice that Moses sets before the people. Remember, this book is written in the voice of Moses, even though it was not written by Moses. It was written many years later. Okay. These verses contain all the elements found in the rest of the book. Commandments, blessings, curse, and appeal for obedience. After all has been said, the entire thrust of the book comes down to a choice that people need to make. Israel's future is dependent upon that choice. God's graciousness is not an issue. It is the response of Israel that causes its future to hang in the balance. In other words, it is up to us. God gives us the grace to offset the drag of evil upon all of us. And that is really what grace is all about. It is a hand of God being extended to offset the pull of evil. God's graciousness is not an issue. It is the response of Israel that causes its future to hang in the balance. Moses is not a neutral observer in the process. He is passionately concerned for Israel's future, and that is why he virtually commands Israel to choose life. Life in Christ. Life in God through obedience. The life and death alternatives are broader than may be apparent to the contemporary reader. Life refers to the sphere of human activity under the protection of the divine. Death refers to that sphere of humanity, uh, human activity, which is devoid of the divine presence. Death, then, is more than a cessation of physical life. It is existence outside the land, existence in the death, <coughs> excuse me, existence in the netherworld of exile. Death is life without God. Life is the blessing and death is the curse. And that is throughout this entire book. Uh, some people have asked me, 
what is hell really like? Well, I haven't been there, so I can't really <laughs> tell you, you know, and I hope never to go there. But look at it this way. When we die as individuals, and I just had a brother and a sister pass away just recently, so, you know, I've had a lot of unfortunate experience along that line. We go directly to the pearly gates, you might say, the face of God. And we learn whether we are going to hell or heaven or, you know, maybe a detour to purgatory. But at least it's one or the other because purgatory eventually gets us to heaven. We see the face of God, something that is so divine that everything else becomes immaterial, unimportant. The face of God is there. But if we are condemned to hell, then we will never see that face again. That is what is the fire that is within us that builds up what is often then depicted as the fire and brimstone of hell. It is not a fire that we can think of, that we think of, or can see, or we start with matches or whatever. It is an anxiety within us to know that we will never see God again and never be relieved, relieved of that penance again. Can you imagine? Just spend a little time thinking about that. You almost shudder and, and you know, it propels you into wanting to be a better person. Chapter 31 is all about leadership. This is written as if it is sort of Moses' last words. Uh, we have no idea what Moses' last words were, nor where they were spoken. But the Deuteronomist writes in this third speech, pretty much the idea of Moses' concern for the leadership after he's gone. Remember, he never did get into the promised land, and that was partly because he was partly responsible for the rebellion that caused the Israelites to wander in the desert for 40 years. Or at least that's what it says. Um, but he is concerned now what will happen to the people if there is no leader. And God tells him that Joshua uh, will be the leader. And it is Joshua who then is commissioned by God through Moses uh, to take leadership and to bring the people across the Jordan into the promised land. So chapter 31 is all about leadership, the call of Joshua. And then once they get over into the promised land, it says the reading of the law. Well, in the time of Moses, the only law that they had was the Ten Commandments. 
the laws that were eventually the basis for the Torah or the Pentateuch came afterwards and after the monarchy. The laws did not start really, the written laws did not get written on parchment or paper or animal skin or whatever they used at the time until after the time of King David. But nevertheless, I want to read this here because it points out the concern of uh, leadership of this group of people. When Moses had written down this law, remember he didn't write it, he entrusted it to the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel, giving him this order. On the Feast of Booths, <coughs> excuse me, what, excuse me, Uh, on the Feast of Booths, and we'll get into uh, this uh, a little later this morning. At the prescribed time in the year of relaxation, which comes at the end of every seven-year period, when all Israel goes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law aloud in the presence of all Israel. Assemble the people, men, women, children as well, and he goes on to read this law. Well, remember, the Deuteronomists are written to these people much, much later, and the law now has been pretty well written out, and they know what the law is. And so what the Deuteronomists are trying to do is to get the people to reread the law, which they have been neglecting over a period of time. Then it goes into the commissioning of Joshua. The Lord said to Moses, the time is now approaching for you to die. Summon Joshua and present yourselves at the meeting tent that I may give him his commission. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the meeting tent. Now the meeting tent, of course, is when they are traveling uh, or wandering in the desert, they had a special tent that the Ark of the Covenant was in, and it was the beginning of a tabernacle system. Okay. So Moses and Joshua went to present themselves at the meeting tent, and the Lord appeared at the tent in the column of cloud, which stood still at the entrance of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, Soon you will be at rest with your fathers. And then uh, this people, meaning the Jewish people, will take to rendering wanton worship uh, to the strange gods among whom they will live in the land. And they are about to enter. They will forsake me and break the covenant which I have made with them. At that time, uh, my anger will flare up against them and I will forsake them and hide my face from them so that they will become a prey to be devoured. And he goes on and on and on. And then he commissions uh, Joshua. Well, we can see that this is happening again today. 
And unfortunately, there's no one person stepping up to make people aware of what is going on. And that is something that we need. Moses also goes on to talk about the place of the ark. Well, we've talked about that many times. And then we have this song of Moses, which is rather interesting. And it, uh, the song of Moses is often used at Easter time in the Saturday vigil service at Easter. And it goes on, Give ear, O heavens, while I speak. Let the earth hearken to the words of my mouth. May my instruction soak in like the rain. And it goes on and on. Here's an interesting point, though. <laughs> Try to influence and friends and foe. It says, Is the Lord to be thus repaid by you, O stupid and foolish people? Is he not your father who created you? Has he not made you and established you? Think back on the days of old. Well, see, Moses couldn't have written this because the days of old hadn't been lived yet. All right. All right. But again, it is part of the Deuteronomous objective to try to re get the people to remember and to return around and repent. The church actually, I, I know what your frustration is, Beth. Uh, what she's trying to say is that there is somebody out there that should be responsible for this. And it should be the church. But unfortunately, they are not doing their job. Yes, Gail? You're right. You're right. And that is why I wrote that prayer that I would like each of you, if you haven't a copy of it, there's still more up there in that uh, packet called uh, Handouts from Previous Meetings. But that prayer addresses the issue right there, that we need to return to the teachings of God and the teachings of the church and that doesn't mean that we have to totally ignore all of the modern conveniences, but they have to fall into their proper place behind God. Uh, well, I've tried. I've tried. I've written to the bishop about this. I've written to the local priests, and nothing happens. Yeah. 
But at the same time, I've also discussed the, the whole idea with certain very good Christians, and they say, well, you know, all of these natural disasters, that's all they are, is natural disasters. They've happened before. Don't worry about it. Well, God uses natural disasters. He is the God of all nature. To, you know, he's not going to come down here himself and do this. He's done it. <clears throat> and look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at the Assyrians overrunning the northern country of Israel. The Babylonians. Oh, these were all done because the people were unfaithful to the teachings of Moses. Teachings of God through Moses. So it is happening again in many ways. Uh, I don't want to belittle the, the point. I think you get the idea. And I, <clears throat> but uh, I can't seem to get it out of my mind and my heart that our society is being swallowed up by the devil through uh, distractions, through ignoring, through other interests that are taking us away from worshiping our God. And I, I'm really, really concerned about that very much. Well, as Gail, Gail said, that's the only alternative that we have, is doing the best we can to get the word out. And if we got that prayer out into social media worldwide, maybe people would start to recognize what's going on. Gene? Well, yes. Any form of teaching would be helpful. Right now, because we are, <clears throat> we are developing a whole generation of people that know very little, if anything, about the meaning of their faith. And the faith is much more than just going to church on Sunday. And again, the mere presence of your body in church on Sunday is not worship. It takes an active, conscious uh, effort to worship. And how many people really put that in? Most people think, well, uh, you know, if I'm there and I put my uh, two bucks in the collection basket and I take communion, that's enough. Uh, no way. No way. Yes, William? Yep, I, I totally agree. Thank you. Yes. Well, I think we've touched on this subject enough, but don't let it stop there. Keep in mind that we all have an obligation to put the word out that God is displeased with the way mankind is going today. Chapter 34 is uh, very, very short. Uh, the death and burial of Moses. So, obviously, I don't think Moses would have written this. <laughs> if, if he did, it would have been a little different, I'm sure. 
And he might say, well, I don't want to end it here. Uh, I'll wait till a better day. All right. Anyways, <laughs> chapter 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, the headland of the whatever here, which faces Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, and as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea. These are all the names of the various tribes. Not all of them, but uh, several of them. This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I would give to their descendants. And I have let you feast your eyes upon it, but you shall not cross over. So there in the land of Moab, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died as the Lord had said. And he was buried in the ravine opposite Beth Peor in the land of Moab. But to this day, no one knows the place of his burial. Moses was 120 years old when he died, and his eyes were undimmed and his figure unbated, just like me. (laughs) I feel like that. I'm about 120, you know. Anyways, this comes to the end of uh, this book here. But I hope that you people will not forget what the book was really all about. It is so important uh, as a reminder, and I think in our efforts towards getting other people to see that society in general is moving away from the worship of God. It has been called old-fashioned. It's been called out-of-date and a few other things. Uh, Unfortunately, people do not realize that the covenant that God made with mankind through Jesus Christ extends forever and is just as important. But that covenant says it's either or. It's either my way or the highway, meaning hell. And that's not very attractive. So we, if we want to save our family and our friends, uh, we have to speak up. We can't be silent. Because when we are silent, we are part of those who are wrong. Any questions? Yes. No, I didn't say it cannot be forgiven. In a way, he did. He said that through repentance, he cannot do. And I'm asking you, how can we not know if he didn't ask for forgiveness? Well, we don't know, but then that's not up to us. But can he be forgiven? Oh, yeah. If he did, yes, by all means. God will forgive anybody if they are sincere in wanting to repent 
and avoid doing whatever they were doing that was wrong with it. again. Even well, you see, that's the unfortunate question. If he committed suicide, that at least to us appears that he never was repentant. But don't you take into account that he might have had terrible mental problems? That's possible, yes. And that the church does say that. The church says in a case of suicide that the person you know, who commits suicide may have been not responsible for their own actions. And therefore, the possibility of repentance is there. And that is why it is not up to us to make a condemning statement. At any time, we don't know all the facts of any person's death and therefore we cannot but you see being human we have to see it as it is and let it go with that the possibility of repentance is always there and God will always honor that if it is sincere else Yeah, I think it's important to uh, pray for those who are contemplating suicide uh, because it shows automatically that they are in a very depressed state and suicide is a way out uh, but unfortunately it is not God's way out and that is the thing that we have to be very concerned about but again, we have no right to condemn anyone. That is not our prerogative. But it appears to us that certain people have gone way too far and deserve hell. But that's only our appearance and our thinking. We are not God and we cannot uh, condemn anyone. That is not our prerogative. All right. Any other questions on the book of Deuteronomy? All right, let's get to another subject. This ends our class meeting for this term. If there is going to be another term, there it would begin somewhere around the middle of January. What I do is usually back up from Holy Week and measure 10 weeks. So, you know, it, it fluctuates, but usually it comes around 
uh, the middle to the or to the end of January. So, if that is going to happen, and I don't and can't make any commitment today, what would you like for us to discuss? The New Testament. The New Testament. Oh, yes, but in what part of the New Testament? Huh? Well, that would take a long time. You could not do that in 10 weeks. Unless you skip over, you know, and just do uh, highlights of each one. Now, I did have another uh, suggestion made before class on comparing the four Gospels. You know, we do have four Gospels. People have often asked, well, why do we need four Gospels? Well, I believe it's God's way of saying that people have come from all different directions, the four corners of the earth, and have different desires and different thoughts and so forth and so on. And therefore, four Gospels are in order because each one of them is slightly different than the other. You have three synoptic Gospels, which are written in a bibliography format, beginning with Christ, uh, Christ's early life. But you have a fourth one that goes from the opposite direction as God coming to earth as man. So each one has its own uh, purpose and audience. We could look at it that way. There are certain books called the Comparative Bible, which actually compares them on a uh, chapter and verse basis. But what else, Dale? Right. It is Deuteronomy, which is all doom and gloom, follow God's way or else. And this is the more uplifting, but still correcting uh, book. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Very interesting point. And you're right. It does talk about God's plan of salvation. Justin? Well, that couldn't really be accomplished well in 10 weeks. Um, it's a good idea, but it would take much longer than uh, 10 weeks. And I don't have the energy to <laughs> go much beyond that. Anyone else? Yes, yes. Uh, you mentioned the women of the Bible also. Uh, and there again, that has been suggested before, but one of the problems there is 
that most of the women, <coughs> excuse me, most of the women in the Bible outside of Mary, the mother of God, uh, are fictional characters. You know, Edith, Judith, uh, I mean, uh, Judith, uh, Esther, Ruth, and Naomi, of course, Naomi is in the book of Ruth. Uh, those are all fictional characters in a, uh, in a true setting. It's like a, uh, historical novel, you know, some, somewhat like Gone with the Wind, uh, the characters are fictional, but the story itself is factual. Uh, most of those stories are the same way. But there aren't enough other women in there to really fill up uh, a class of uh, nine or ten weeks. Uh, there's not enough about Mary Magdalene, you know, really, in there. Yes, Gail? Well, yes, but Luke was Luke, probably Luke was probably not there either. Yeah, Margaret, did you have a? Oh, yeah. Well, that that is very important. That to me is is my favorite gospel. Uh, but all of the gospels are very important. All right. Uh, yes. Uh, you mentioned that once before, I remember, and I looked it up, and that is a collection of Paul, Paul's letters and perhaps a little bit of Peter's letters, um, and James, Peter's, Peter, James, and John. Yeah, uh, yeah, that that would be an interesting. Yeah, we did. No. The portion of letters that are often classified as the Catholic letters. Oh, okay. Yeah. They are portions of Peter, James, and John. And, uh, you know, Hebrews is another important letter that has a lot to say. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but uh, it has a great deal to, to say to us today. Well, all of these are interesting suggestions. Like I said, I cannot commit myself to any of them. We have to spend some time thinking about them and uh, a few other things. So uh, I hate to end too early, but... Uh, question. Yes. Are Israelites, Hebrews, and Jews Israelites, Hebrews, and Jews. Yes. At different time periods, each of those names were used. In today's understanding, it is Israeli, Hebrew, and Jew. Okay? Well, Israeli, Israeli is the nationality. Hebrew is the language. Jew, uh, Judaism is the religion. Okay. Does that understand? Yeah. Israeli is the nationality, Hebrew is the language, and Judaism is the religion. Yeah. Hebrew is not actually used in Israel uh, on an everyday basis. It's become more or less like Latin, uh, a language 
of uh, ceremonies yeah. and, and legal, legal terms. Yeah. Yes. The mass. That's uh, an interesting point. Doug suggested uh, a course on studying the mass, the various parts of the mass, where they came from, uh, how they fit together. Yes, Gene. You second that, okay. Do I hear a third? Do I hear a third? <laughs> yeah. That would be that would be interesting. Well, uh, that would take ten weeks for me to answer that. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, Vito? Oh, the liturgical year, yeah. Ken Crawford is doing a, a little bit of talk on that right now. But, yes, how many of you are aware of the liturgical year and how it is divided? Okay. You have four different periods, actually five four different periods within a liturgical year and then those periods outside of or that time outside of those four periods uh, is called ordinary time. All right. You have Lent, Easter, Advent, and Christmas are the four different time periods and you have special uh Portion, special portions of the Mass or special readings of the Mass during that time and then outside of those four time periods is called ordinary time. Uh, I think we've gotten enough uh, suggestions here. Uh, yes? That's all it's worth is two cents? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of, what I'm saying is we, we, you know, in these troubled times, we must set our own individual good examples. We are the hands, feet, and the eyes of Christ out there. Let's remember, the devil is working overtime and wants to grab as many souls as possible and go with him to hell. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Uh, yes, Jennifer. Much later. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, the mass itself sort of came along little by little. It did not just appear at one point in time. It was always, of course, stemmed from the Eucharistic celebration, which began in anybody's home. Anybody could do that in the very early days of the first century. But gradually, as 
Paul's letters came out, people began to realize the importance of that part of the ceremony and that it had to be something a little more special than something out of an everyday uh, dinner. And so it became part of a separate ceremony. And then the readings as Paul's letters and the other letters began to come along and the Gospels, that became a part of it. But gradually, it wasn't until the 15th, 16th century uh, and the Council of Trent that the book of the Gospel was actually written in a format that was standard throughout all of Christianity. So, and then of course it was changed again in uh, Vatican II. Yes, Lillian? Right from the very beginning of, in time, we have no, uh, no specific time or date, but the sign of the cross started right in the early, very early part of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, Lillian's question was, when did the sign of the cross, you know, the blessing of yourself in the sign of the cross start? And that came right from the very earliest days, but we don't have any record of when or just how. Yeah. Uh, remember, people going into battle have often been advised to use and it was customary that they would use some form of prayer, but a blessing of themselves before they went into battle. And it could have started there. I think we've covered enough for that, so let's end with a prayer. Lord, we've come to the end of this session, but certainly not to the end of our time with you. In fact, we hope that from this session we've learned a little bit more about the importance of being close to you. Close to you not only at times of mass, but in times of prayer, regardless of where. So we ask your blessing on each of us and our families. And we just give you praise and thanksgiving for this time together and so many other things. In Jesus' name. Amen.